Welcome to episode 15 of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. Now, today I'm thrilled to welcome Caitlin Bolnick. Now, Caitlin is a principal at CRV, one of the oldest early stage venture capital firms with a history dating back to 1970 and a portfolio including the likes of Airtable, DoorDash and Dropbox. At CRV, Caitlin focuses on all things B2B. Prior to CRV, Caitlin was an investor at OpenView, focusing on expansion stage investing in the future of SaaS and product-led growth. Well, Caitlin, listen, it's a real pleasure to have you on, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Alex. Now, Caitlin, to kick things off, I know you grew up in Montana and spent a lot of time out in the wild. Now, I'd love for you to start off by talking me through your journey from the Wild West in Montana to the Wild West in venture capital. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Two very different types of Wild West, but uh, a lot of similarities between the two also. Um, So I actually grew up originally in a very small town in Texas, um, and we ended up moving to Montana when I was about 10 years old. Um, My dad was a total ski bum and, and loved it out here. So we moved here, and it's funny, when I think about sort of my life path and advances podcast. Um, you know, when I was younger, I didn't even really know tech was a thing. So I lived in this really small town in Bozeman, Montana, which has now become, you know, super cool and hip, but at the time was totally different. Um, and I didn't have any friends and I was sort of this like weird Texan. And so I really sort of fell in love with the internet. So I was, you know, super active with the Sims and Neopets and just like constantly on the internet. And I didn't really think anything of it. And so fast forward, I ended up going to Penn for college, um, ended up moving at graduation to LA and I worked at Red Bull, which like, as an aside is like such a fascinating company. Um, and I thought I wanted to do communications and marketing. And so one of the projects that I ended up doing was where I sat in the organization. Um, I sat in between marketing and sales. And so One of the projects that I was assigned to doing is like figuring out how to increase consumption within at work situations. And so one of the industries that I ended up being sort of like assigned or focused to was tech. And um, I absolutely just fell in love. Um, I felt like it was sort of this like culmination of like me, you know, as a young child, like spending hours and hours on the Internet and then actually realizing that you could make a career in it. So I, you know, immediately sort of dove headfirst. I uh, ended up leaving Red Bull. I ended up joining a startup that sort of failed spectacularly called Washio in the consumer space. And then I went on to be on the founding team of a startup that has sort of taken a ton of lefts and rights and ultimately now is actually still running today. It's called HQO. It's an insight-backed company. And and Chase over there is just incredible in terms of just like mentorship and, and what he was able to build. Um, and then obviously went to OpenView for a couple of years and really just missed being on the earlier side of things and, and from the operating days. And so then joined CRV and now have been here for about two years. So that's the sort of lengthy uh, overview. Yeah, you mentioned there that the first startup you worked for was Washio, which was on-demand laundry. And I'm really curious to hear what your core learnings were from that startup failure to you now pivoting to the investing side. Yeah, absolutely. So I think like number one thing that I learned is just like consumer is so hard. 
Um, I think, you know, consumer demand and sort of what makes a consumer tick is just so fundamentally different than, you know, what I'm doing today on the B2B side. But I think there were like a couple of key learnings. So at the time when I joined Washio, um, it was during the on-demand phase. So there were hundreds of these on-demand companies, whether it was HomeJoy, which failed, Lux, which, which failed, and you name it, a, a ton more. And ultimately, like the thing that is most sort of salient, and I think particularly apt given the current environment, is that like the best businesses really are built on sound fundamentals, meaning unit economics really matter. Like cost of acquisition relative to LTV really matters. And I think for Washio, we were so focused on sort of growing at all costs that we sort of lost the plot in terms of like how to actually make the unit economics of the business work. And that's something that I think I very much sort of brought with me into investing and why I love sort of really understanding the nuances and the fundamentals of like what makes a B2B business tick um, in, in order to invest. Yeah, you're definitely right there, Caitlin. The best businesses are built on fundamentals. And I think whilst over the last 18 months, that's somewhat been a bit of a sidetracked thought, it's now very much coming back to center view with how startups are a lot more prudently approaching their next round of fundraising. So I think it's uh, important to consider. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's funny, like for the first time over the last 24 months, we're like actually talking about payback. We're actually talking about burn efficiencies, like, and that stuff has always sort of fundamentally mattered, um, but now even more so. Yeah, totally, totally with you there. Um, and I guess still looking at your early career, you said that, you know, your your passion and, and chip on your shoulder has really led you to meet these incredible people along the line, all the way going back from Red Bull to Washio to now ending up at CRV. What really sets apart individuals who have chips on shoulders versus those who don't? Yeah, I I think about this a lot. Like, do you need a chip on your shoulders to, to succeed? Like, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. But I think like, if you think about the world, there are a lot of exceptional people who are really good at things. And like that alone is not enough to build a big business because like as an entrepreneur, you have to be willing to get knocked down so many times and still be able to get back up that there has to be something additional. There has to be like some X. That's the reason why you get up in the morning and why you fight for the business that you're building or else, you know you sometimes lose the plot, I think, a little bit. So to me, the thing that I really cue in on, and if I think about sort of across my portfolio, um, and, I, and I talk a lot about, I think, you know, Gray Noise is a great example of that because I knew him at OpenView, I angel invested, and then CRV actually did the deal um, right before I joined. And so if I look at him, like, you know, he's a great example of just like has this like extra chip on his shoulder that you know that he's going to be able to sort of punch through walls. And if I look across our portfolio at our best entrepreneurs, they all sort of have something else that keeps them going because I think just being exceptionally talented is not enough just given how hard the entrepreneurial journey is. Yeah, just following that vein on, you know, it is it is a hard process. It, it is a hard path to roll with. What would you attribute that X to on your journey, Caitlin? Is there anything that's, that fundamentally drove that from an early age? Yeah, I mean, I honestly think it was this sort of, like, I always just felt a little left out, candidly. Like, 
growing up in Texas, I was like the only, I was in the super, super small town. I was the only Jew for miles and miles and miles. And I always just felt kind of different. And then I moved to Montana where I was super smart and I really wanted to go to college. And like at the time that was like not the cool thing to do. It was like, you know, Bozeman was very, very insular. And so I just always felt sort of left out. And it wasn't until I sort of entered tech and realized that there were like lots of people who had sort of similar experiences or, or sort of similar feelings to me that I realized like, oh, this was the place I wanted to be. And then, you know, if I think about venture, obviously like the truth of the matter is there's like not that many women in venture. And when I looked to get into venture, I had so many, you know, people tell me I couldn't. And so this like chip of mine is like always sort of trying to prove myself and show that like I can do all these things that like I can break in, that I can be successful against sort of like all of the odds from, you know, childhood all the way to now. Yeah, totally. And I think from that, I'd love to know what advice you'd give to others who also feel a little off the beaten path, so to speak, but want success nonetheless. And even though they're a little bit left out, they they really, really want it. And it's absolutely in their, in their foresight. What advice would you give to them, Caitlin? Yeah, I think ultimately it's about like going out and grabbing what you want and figuring out how to do that. So for me, you know, I grew up when I was in Montana and I knew that like if I stayed in Montana, you know, I could have done a bunch of amazing things, but it would have been infinitely harder. And so I looked to like go to boarding school to try to get out of sort of where I was being raised. And so I think it's about just like figuring out what the end state is and like not letting people sort of get you down and trying to just focus and and go towards those goals. Um, And so, yeah, I guess that would be my advice. Not the most uh, inspirational, but it's just like, don't listen to what other people think and like go after what you actually want. No, I love that. That's totally, totally sound. Um, I'd love to know, you know, looking at this sort of early, very formative phase of your career as a collective, what would be, some of the biggest takeaways, Caitlin, that you that you've now ultimately brought across to the investing sphere? Yeah, I think one thing is like, especially in venture, like the entrepreneurs are doing the hard part. Like we're picking, but they're the ones who are building this these businesses day in, day out and really living it. And I think like if you can bring like empathy and transparency and honesty, like it just goes so far because like ultimately at the end of the day, like what we're trying to do as investors is support and like be a guiding like force. But ultimately like the decisions around product, like the day-to-day hardships, like those do fall on the founder. And the best that we can do is be like an empathetic partner and be like the most founder friendly that we can possibly be. Yeah. I think very much acting as the supportive guide to entrepreneurs you know uh, alongside the capital that we bring it's it's absolutely to those to those points that you mentioned there caitlin it's it's the empathy it is the transparency it is the honesty because ultimately that is how you you drive success exactly and i also think like it's easy to be a cheerleader when everything's going good but especially in times of like bad i think that's when sort of a venture capitalist really sort of like distinguishes themselves from from good versus bad like how do you be honest and transparent about the tough things and try to be on the same page um while still being founder friendly and sort of supporting the entrepreneurs that you work with yeah no totally i think it's it's all about you know ingraining yourself um understanding the process and really 
whilst keeping that sort of finger on the pulse, so to speak, and giving that advice as from an impartial level as possible. I think that's absolutely the right vein. Um, I'd now love to switch over a little bit to your present investing mandate at CRV. And I know your investment focus is B2B from quite a general position, Caitlin. What inherently interests you about the sector? Yeah, I like absolutely love B2B software, which is like a very uh, nerdy thing to probably say. Um, The way that I think about where I invest is I've created this sort of like arbitrary line in my head of like things I understand and things I don't. And so I really try to say shift left of the things I understand bucket. Um, And the thing that's like most interesting to me about B2B software is like the way that businesses buy software is just constantly changing. If we think about the shift from on-prem to cloud, if we think about the shift from tops down sales to bottoms up sales, like there's just so much evolution. And like as businesses evolve and like their needs evolve, like there's just so much opportunity within the space. And then the second thing that I think comes back to like my Washio experience is I love just being able to get on the phone with a decision maker, with a buyer and saying like, what are your pain points? And like, does this thing actually solve them? And if the answer is yes, like that's really interesting to me. Um, I tend not to invest in companies with like what I refer to as soft ROI. So I love understanding like where budget for a solution comes from and how does that drive value and sort of enterprise value long-term. Yeah, I love that point about soft ROI. And I think, you know, it, it often gets a little bit, well, I guess in some instances prioritized and then in other cases neglected. So I think I think it's really, really important to truly understand where that value is being derived from. Um, and I guess, you know, alongside that, I'm really interested to hear, obviously you, you started a little bit on the later stage with where you were um, earlier on in your career. What stage focus are you at now, Caitlin, with your, with your B2B investing? Yeah, absolutely. So um, at OpenView, I focus primarily on series B and C. So much more growth investing, which I think was like a perfect sort of entryway into venture to understand like what do businesses look like at scale. Nowadays, I spend much more of my time on the earliest stages. So I look at seed series A, and then I'll do an occasional B. So I invested in loop returns at the series B, but by and large, the bulk of my investments are on seed and A. Um, And they tend to be sort of just past product market fit. So tend to look at products in market that are looking to sort of pour fuel on the fire um, and, you know, watch it burn. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And I think it's it's quite a clear distinction, right? You know, going from the expansion stage where you were, look, there's clear product market fit, whereas early stage, this is a little bit less clear. What problems has that arise, at least from from your end, Caitlin, when you're actually allocating capital and finding if the fit is there? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, at the earliest stages, it's just so much changes about a business. So, you know, as an investor, when you're looking to make an investment, you have this thesis, you have this case, you, you know, think about your, your, the weaknesses of the business, like what could go right, what could go wrong. And the reality of the matter is like, you just really don't know. And at the end of the day, like what you're betting on is like a market trend and a founder. Like those are the two most important things in my mind. And so, I think like, 
you know, when you think about it, you can get some of those things directionally right, directionally wrong, and you really don't know for several years down the road. So I think that's where like sort of the difficulty comes. But at the end of the day, like you're betting on a person, you're betting on a market. And then the the last piece about like betting on people, like we love to talk about like who the person is and their background and their qualification, like generally. But I also think like there's this other piece that I've sort of increasingly started to focus and pay attention on. And it's like the ability for that founder to sort of really understand go to market um, and be able to sort of execute on that. Yeah, totally. And I think from a little bit of a higher level, CRV is obviously one of the oldest venture firms that is, you know, starting out in 1970, going along for 50 odd years now. And then obviously, way, way back, it was actually commercializing this research coming straight out of MIT. I'd love to hear CRV's process for actually finding these most promising companies within B2B. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, so CRV is like one of the oldest firms in the country. Uh, amazing legacy, absolutely zero thanks to myself. And I think the way <laughs> that we uh, do things and the way that we find interesting opportunities, like ultimately it just comes down to like founder networks. So if you think about, you know, Max and Airtable or Reed and Vercel, and, and there's, you know, tons and tons more examples, like ultimately like I, our founders are our best resources. And so if I think about like the best opportunities that we found, they've largely come through our network that we've been fortunate to build over the last, you know, many years. And I think the other thing that might be a little different um, relative to some other firms is we're like a fully sort of autonomous conviction shop. So what that means is that like, we don't have some super large investment committee that votes up and down. It's all conviction driven, which enables us to move super quickly when we're really excited about an opportunity. Do you think there are any associated challenges with this autonomous conviction, quite agile states versus, say, passing up to the board, having more of an elongated review and then ultimately pulling the trigger? Absolutely. I think like one, you know, isn't there like a saying that like every strength is also a weakness? And I think this is like no different. I think you really have to have trust in the partnership and trust in sort of conviction in the folks that you work with that they're going to make the best possible decision because ultimately we support each other. We provide feedback and we're super collaborative, but ultimately it comes down to the individual partner to make the decision. Like, do we want to, be in business with this entrepreneur. Um, and so I think because of that, there just is, you know, inherently more trust required. Um, and I think you have sort of a greater obligation to the partnership to do the work to, to show and sort of be confident in your decision making. No, ab absolutely there, Caitlin. Um, and I guess diving in a little bit deeper, you know, should, should all these companies lean into product-led growth and product-led sales within B2B, or does it really only fit a certain software model? Oh man, this is like a topic that I talk about all the time and I argue with. So I think this whole farce around like either you're a sales led organization or a product led organization is honestly like full of shit. And like the truth of the matter is like it's somewhere in between. Like maybe you start as a product led growth organization, but if you look at like the best product led growth organizations across the globe, they all now at scale have some sort of sales org. And so I think it's about like what is the go to market motion that's most natural for your business. So for example, if you're an open source business, then maybe it makes the most amount of sense to have some sort of free offering, which then, you know, up levels to an enterprise offering or a cloud solution that's like hosted versus, you know, if maybe you're a, 
I don't know, a vertical software solution in plumbing, then maybe it doesn't make sense to do sort of product-led growth, but a free trial might make sense. So I think that there's so much nuance. And I think this whole debate on like, should you be product-led or sales-led is like, honestly, just VC speak. And it's ultimately like what go-to-market motion makes the, se- makes the most sense for your business. The one thing I will say is like across the board, like no one wants to go to a website, in my opinion, and like, you know, have to wait three hours or a day to like get a, get a response back. And so I think it's all about like, how do you provide customer value as quickly as possible and as immediately as possible? And so for some businesses that are super sales led and maybe like they don't want to do anything with product led growth. One of the things that I always like think about and challenge them on is like, is there some sort of demo or some sort of experience that you can put up front so that when someone's really interested in your website or your product, that they can sort of immediately experience it and you don't lose the opportunity to just sort of capture them at their greatest moment of intent. No, I'm totally with you there. And I'd love to hear what are some of the greatest opportunities within B2B right now, Caitlin? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, So I, I think, you know, there's been so much investing in sort of uh, the data layer for the past, you know, 18 months that like, to me, that, that space feels pretty saturated. I think where I get really excited and where I've been spending a lot of my time increasingly is actually, um, thinking about interesting vertical software solutions. So I think that there are so many industries where, you know, previously we would say, okay, maybe it's too small or something's, you know, inherently around the structure doesn't make sense. But I think especially as the world sort of continues to evolve, these these verticals get larger and larger when you think about payments, when you think about additional sort of products that you can layer within. And I think that there's a ton of opportunity um, there. The other sort of uh, huge opportunity that I think about and that I've made a couple of investments recently in is around just the way cybersecurity actually is bought and sold. So historically, the way that it worked is that you went through a CISO, it was heavy event driven, you know, you would go to RSA and this was the whole process. But I think increasingly you're seeing sort of the same trends that's happened in developer tooling happen in cybersecurity. So there's like this whole wave of new technologies that are coming up sort of organically through bottoms up. And, um, you know, I think gray noise is an example of that. I think fleet DM is another example of that. Um, you know, project discovery rumble, like there's a ton of these solutions. And I think ultimately the way that they're bought and sold is just very different. Um, and that is another area that's super exciting to me. Yeah. You mentioned with the data layer of B2B becoming very much saturated whilst your interests lie, you know, in that vertical software solutions part. Now, I'm interested, Caitlin, how do you see these industry trends playing out over the next decade? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. I think like, especially as we think about like, just human capital and the shortage of it within sort of all verticals, I think that's going to necessitate like necessitate interesting technologies to sort of solve those solutions. So, um, you know, I recently did an investment on announce in a company, um, that's in a vertical, I'm purposely sounding a little vague here. Um, but 
essentially like this industry is still everything is done via like paper and pen and these like super super old school legacy computers and when you see that you're like obviously this has to change because like this is a remnant of the past now how that changes will probably be painful and longer than even we expect it to be but the point is like that to me seems like such an interesting opportunity for technology to come in automate how pos is done automate how you know um, things are bought and sold within this industry. Bring it online. Like those are the types of opportunities that I think are really, really interesting within, you know, so- like enterprise software specifically. No, fascinating. And I think coming back to the present now, I'd love to hear your take on the current fundraising climate, Caitlin. Look, is the compression of multiples and the reemergence of down rounds something that worries you? You know, it doesn't. Um, the, the reality of the matter is like it is grim in the fundraising environment right now, particularly at the later stages. But also it's been sort of nonsensical for the last 18, 24 months. And so in some ways, I think about this as like very much a reversion to the mean and like the reversion as to like what is right um, in terms of the environment. Like for a while, it was just like totally, you know, batshit. Um, and so I think for now, like the things that matter are the things that like, in my mind, have always mattered. Like founders should build a really good business. They should worry and focus on, you know, thinking about payback, thinking about finding product market fit. Like, I think, you know, there's been a lot of glamorization of fundraising and fundraising, if you're able to do it is great because it affords you the ability to like survive another day and continue to build towards the ultimate goal of like creating enterprise value. But like, fundraising is just a means to an end and ultimately like as a founder as an investor like the thing that i just tell all of the the teams that i work with is like just focus on the business fundamentals and like that's what's most important because like in the current environment what's happening is there's been like more of a stratification so like if you're building like the best business like it's still going to get funded it might be a little harder it might be more difficult but like it is still going to get funded And now if you're building like a super, super weak business that maybe would have gotten funded 18 months ago or 10 months ago, whatever, um, yeah, you might be in some trouble. And then now it's like, okay, now what, what happens with this whole messy middle? And that's where like, I really am sort of pushing teams to sort of figure out which bucket you want to be in and use the time as best as possible. Um, the other advice that we're giving, which is like, I think every VC is giving is like, if there is money around the table, like you should probably take it because we don't know how long this environment is going to last for. And candidly, like, I think it's going to keep going for a little while. Yeah, really interesting. And I think it's all about focusing on the people, the fundamentals, the story, you know, I guess taking a little bit of a step back, Caitlin, um, obviously we've, we've had a really fascinating conversation diving into B2B and your investing career. I'm curious to hear what the greatest lesson you've learned from investing so far is. Yeah, I guess, honestly, the the greatest lesson is, like, you just never know what, like, I guess the, the age old saying, like, what goes around comes around. Like, I've entered venture and it's not like I've been in it for so long. It's been, uh, I guess, just over two years. Like, 
with the understanding to like try to be as helpful, kind, open, transparent as possible. And I have just been so shocked how that's come back to me in absolute spades. So like helping one person randomly, you know, two and a half years ago, and then like all of a sudden they come back and they're like, Hey, I'm like starting this really interesting business and you were so helpful. And so I think like, that's one of my biggest lessons around venture is that like, it's just a really, really small world. And you just have to like assume that that will be the case moving forward and, and act accordingly. Um, I think the second thing that like I have really sort of had to learn and, and sort of very much feel conviction in is like ultimately like you can listen to whatever hype you want around you, but the decision whether to invest, the decision whether or not to run a business ultimately falls down on the individual. And so like you really just have to have conviction in the fundamentals of the business and like what you believe to be true. Um, and so I think those are probably my like two big learnings. One more fluffy, the other one, I think a little bit more tactile around like what does a business structurally look like for success? No, I do agree with you there, Kate. And I think a genuine interest in other success, it actually expedites your own. It's often a bit of a paradox, right? Where look, if it actually bothers you to see other people succeed, then you're definitely look holding yourself back and it's going to be a hard, hard path ahead. But actually showing that genuine interest in letting others win and just being genuinely helpful, I think it absolutely pays dividends down the line. Yep, totally. Tremendous. Now, I would love to know, Caitlin, taking a bit of a step back from investing, when you think of success, who is the first person that comes to mind and why? Oh, man, this is going to be such a corny answer. And I, in fairness, I forewarned him that like I might end up talking about him. Um, but it would without a doubt be my husband. Um, so my husband is, um, the founder CEO of a, a large company, um, that recently sold and just watching him sort of go through the motion. It's been, you know, seven years, it's been anything but up and to the right. And I think just watching him sort of get knocked down repeatedly and get back up has honestly given me even more empathy than operating has. Um, and so he's like by far the definition of an entrepreneur. That's incredible. I love that example. Caitlin, I also want to know, what does your perfect day look like? So if, for those of you who know me, I'm a, a crazy dog mom. So I have uh, two dogs. So without a doubt, it would start with like a nice cup of coffee that I don't make myself, to be clear. Um, and walking the dogs, probably doing some work because like I truly do love what I do. And then, uh, you know, getting out into the mountains like for a hike or, or just anything pretty much outside fishing, um, four wheeling, you name it. So um, outdoors, some good coffee, my dogs and then my family probably. I know you were pretty handy on those four wheelers back when you were younger, Caitlin. How, how's that oh my God. drive and development come on? It's great. I drive them all the time. Uh, it's, uh, it's so fun. There's something like so freeing about being able to go so fast. Uh, I just absolutely love it. So I, a little bit of a speed demon, I guess. <laughs> Tremendous. No, I really, really love that. Now moving on, um, 24 hours before I asked Twitter for questions they'd like to ask you. So we'll dive right in. Does that sound good, Kate? Works for me. Perfect. So Ankit Vakaria, he asks, what's your framework when you're evaluating SaaS businesses? Yeah, I think, look, I think it also depends. Like I, I talked to someone about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. I think it also depends on like firm. So 
I'm just going to speak for me personally. Um, what is my framework? So typically what I want to see is I want to see the ability for this business to truly become, I need to see a path for it to become a several billion dollar business. Like if, if it's not going to be that, if I think it's like a small market or like limited upside, like that is probably not going to be a good fit for me. Um, so typically it's like, okay, what is the market opportunity ahead? Like, do I believe it could be a massive business? Um, the other thing that I found is like, I typically find like the best businesses innovate in sort of two areas, go to market and product. Like you need to have a better product than existing competitors or sort of other solutions out there. Ideally it's like, has some sort of defensibility to it. Although you can argue that in today's world, like nothing is really defensible, but so ideally there's some sort of product innovation that's super interesting. And then there's some sort of go to market that's like different or that can execute in a, in a sort of unique fashion. So for me, it's like market, it's team, it's product. Um, and then it's go to market. Those are the things that are like most important. And then the other piece that like, isn't so much a framework for how I evaluate the company, but I think is important is that like the entrepreneur and I are aligned on like what future state looks like. So a lot of times, like, you know, VCs can sort of paint a picture of what they want the business to be. That's like different than what the founder wants to be. And it's super important to me that like, there's a hundred percent alignment in terms of like long-term vision. Um, and, and yeah. Yeah, I agree. That alignment is so, so critical, Caitlin. You both absolutely want to be batting for the same team. <laughs> exactly. Now, so, yeah, no, totally, totally. And moving on to the next one, um, Swaminathan asks, since software is embedded in every product now, is every product of the future SaaSable? I think it really depends. Like, m maybe my hot take is... Uh, yes, but I think it also depends on like how recurring in nature the different businesses are. Like we're talking kind of vaguely here, but I think like some businesses are inherently more sassable than others. And I think the reality is like, especially if you get outside of Silicon Valley, like a lot of businesses are still like on prem. And so I think there's still a ton of shift that needs to be done from like truly on prem to the cloud, especially in sort of like legacy enterprise use cases. And so I think, yes, the answer is like software is eating the world. Like totally agree with that. But I think in some industries, it just takes a little longer. I love that take. Now, Colin Luce asks, how do you stand out in the newly crowded VC market of Mill Valley, California? Oh man, what, what a burn. Um, you know, I guess I hear that Patagonia has some uh, brighter color vests. So maybe I should... Uh, <laughs> swap them in to stick out more. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I like to say, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's probably a shitty answer, but, uh, try to be empathetic and same things we've talked about in the past. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. Empathy, being a good listener. Um, I think those are just the foundational building blocks. Also, I can have a beer with anyone. So there you go. I love that. <laughs> totally, totally about that. And perhaps the most personal question of them all, Caitlin, I know you did just touch on it, but Sasa Radic, uh, apologies for that poor pronunciation. They ask, how many Patagonia sweaters did you buy once you became a VC? Okay, that was a total joke on the colored vest. Let the, the record show. I actually only have a single Patagonia vest. And when I moved to California, I was too embarrassed to wear it. So I haven't really worn it because like the last thing I want to be is a Patagonia toting vest VC. So have that on the record. 
<laughs> it's on there, Caitlin. It's on there. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> now, I have a tradition on this podcast, Caitlin, where at the end of the show, each guest answers a question that was left by the previous guest. Now, last week we had Hassan Bati, the product BD over at Snowflake on, and their question is, what is one thing you wish you truly understood in your 20s? Honestly, th- okay, this is going to make me sound so old, but just like life is really, really short. And so like, I just wish that I would have like reveled. I think I was just so focused in the tw- in my 20s on like where I was going, what's next, like how to get there. And I think in some ways I still kind of have that. But I think like, taking some time to like stop and smell the roses and just like enjoy how great your twenties are is like, I wish I would have done like way more of that. Amazing. No, I really, really like that answer. Well, Caitlin, this has been an absolute joy to do. It's been raw, honest, and I've had a lot of fun. Uh, So thank you for joining me. Thank you. This has been a blast.